The first time somebody spoke to me about Michael Schumacher is one of the guys in jail. And he said, the new guy that they hired is so good, they don't need you anymore. So you can stay here. For those of you old enough, can you remember what you were doing 30 years ago? Because my guest this week certainly can. He was banged up in a London prison and his race seat at the Jordan team for the Belgian Grand Prix was taken by a young German rookie called Michael Schumacher. Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest is, of course, Bertrand Gachot. Up until the midpoint of 1991, he'd been enjoying the best season of his career. He'd taken three points finishes for Jordan in their debut season, and he'd won Le Mans, and after making a set-up breakthrough at the Hungarian Grand Prix, he'd bet his mechanics that he'd take pole position at Spa. But he never got to Spa. In a moment that would rock the paddock, Bertrand was locked up in jail in Brixton for an incident with a London taxi driver that had taken place the previous December. Eddie Jordan replaced him with Schumacher and the rest, as they say, is history. It really is one hell of a story. And all these years later, Bertrand remembers it like it was yesterday. He's incredibly candid about his experiences and some of his descriptions about life as a Formula One driver in prison will leave you open-mouthed. And while his Formula One career lost its momentum, prison didn't kill it completely. He went on to race for La Russe and he even started his own Formula One team, Pacific Grand Prix. Bertrand's story is an incredible one. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Bertrand, it's fantastic to see you. Uh, it's been a while. First up, where in the world are you? I know you, you're all over the place these days. Well, basically, I, I, pass my, I spend my time between Dubai and, and Europe. At the moment, I'm in, in the south of Spain. Yeah, I, I enjoy these two parts of the world very much. Dubai, for me, is an incredible place. It is incredible, of course, and we're looking forward to going back to the Middle East at the end of the year. But, Bertrand, it is 30 years, would you believe it, uh, since Michael Schumacher made his debut at Spa-Francorchamps. And can we start by just talking through the build-up to that race weekend at Spa? Can you describe the scene as you went into the court in London, who was with you? What were you thinking? <laughs> That's a lot. That would be a long conversation. You know, it, it was really uh, an incredible event. I was absolutely not ready for it. I never expected to, to end up in jail. I thought that it would be just a formality. What also I want to say is, you see, Eddie Jordan was a bad actor in this thing, but we're friends since, and, you know, we laugh about it. But at the time, basically, it was a very tense situation for everyone. So I'll, I'll try to describe it in the most, I would say, uh, honest way, you know, which is not always best for me. But yeah, this is how I recall the events. And, and, you know, this is also how I try to learn from my mistakes and what I did wrong, what I didn't expect. So I, I, I really didn't expect an outcome that, like, like I had. I thought I would get a, a fine. So basically, December uh, 1990, so in December before, I was in London and I, I was driving my girlfriend's car. It was a French car. 
And basically, I had a, a tear gas because in France, tear gas is, is considered as the, the, the perfect means of defense. You know, it doesn't escalate. You just spray tear gas. Everybody's got tear gas in their eyes and you walk away because you don't want to fight. And basically, I put that in her car at the time because you buy them in petrol stations. And when I got into Hyde Park Corner, I was going to a meeting at the, the Carlton Towers with Eddie. And Eddie was a, a few cars behind me. And we were on the phone. We had a dispute. He wanted to, to cut the line in. I didn't want to let him in because I was stupid. Eventually, he came in and I pushed him because he tried to break test me. And eventually, I said, look, break test me one more time. I'll push the guy. I pushed him with my car just to say I wasn't happy. We were in traffic. You know, it was like we we're not moving. How much damage was there to him? No, his... no, no. There was no damage. It was bumper to bumper when you parked the car was, because we were, we were stopped in the traffic. And basically, I pushed him a little bit. I just gave him a nudge. And basically, the guy came out of the car and he opened my door and he said he wanted to kill me and all this. And I didn't have a worse idea than to use that tear gas and, and spray him with that and say, go away. I didn't know it was like considered as a weapon in the, U, in the UK. I was the one calling the police. I called the police, and but I didn't need to call the police because within... I would say 30 seconds, I was surrounded by 200 taxi drivers that wanted to kill me. And uh, the police officers that came, and it was quite surprising. And two minutes before the taxi driver that wanted to kill me and, and threaten me and all that, suddenly he was like, you can't do this. And, he was, and I just remember telling him, yeah, now you're crying for your mommy. Two minutes ago, you wanted to kill me. All of this is in, unnecessary. That was in, in December I went to the police station, I registered myself, and, and I, I described this because I think it's a good experience for other people to share because I went to the police station, everything was fine. Half an hour later, I was out. And I went to the meeting with, it was a lot of the people from 7up. Really, I thought I would get a fine for that or something because they did explain to me that it was forbidden in the UK. And nine months later, I went to court. So it's nine months later. So that happened in December, 1990. I went to court. And the judge put me in jail straight, you know. How much had the incident been playing on your mind during those nine months? Not really, because I, I really did not expect that because I, I took the advice of three different lawyers and they said to me, look, you get a slap on the wrist. The worst you could get is a suspended sentence. And that's really the key because Eddie wanted me to have a suspended sentence so that he could break the contract because of the distributing clause. So that, that, that was it. It was all a game of chess for him and nothing personal. So he just wanted uh, power and, and be in a position to, to negotiate because he needed money desperately. When you heard the verdict, what was your first thought? I just remember that when the verdict came, no, first, there was some kind of a, of a jury and uh, they, they asked for a question. And then eventually they didn't have unanimity so they went for majority and the question was does tear gas create permanent damage and the answer was no and then basically they didn't come to a majority verdict and when the verdict came the whole room went like wow because it was like two years of jail extraordinary which was the biggest biggest sentence ever given to anyone using a tear gas even to attack someone or something like that and what was also interesting is when we started the court case, and I'll never forget, is the prosecution went to the bench and said to the judge, we believe this is half a dozen and six 
was I don't know this expression. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, very English. Yeah, and and he said, uh, okay, we would like to 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 propose that we drop the whole thing. So the prosecution came to ask us if we wanted to drop it, and we said, sure, because I was really fighting. Why did I go to court? Was to not get a conviction, so that the contract I had signed with Eddie Jordan could not be put as me putting the team in disrepute. If not, I would not have gone to court. I didn't want to breach the agreement, basically, because if not, I knew that I would be out of the team. So EJ was trying to get you out of the team at that point in the season, despite the fact everything was going so well. You'd just done the fastest lap in Hungary. You'd had two sixth places. You'd had that fifth in in Canada. I'd love EJ to be next to me when we talk about this. No, I think what he he didn't want me out of the team. He wanted me to find some more money, basically, because he was he was hanging. And what he did was extraordinary, you know, to build a team like that and to be competitive at the first year. So that was remarkable. But he was really desperate for money. Yeah. And he he had no choice. He told me, he looked at me in the eyes. He says, look, we're friends. But if I have to decide between friendship and my business, it's going to be my business. It was very clear. So what happened next? Were you whisked straight to prison? or Because or, I heard a story that you were actually on your way to test at Monza. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Imola. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to run. And I was really not expecting that. And when the, the judgment came, I didn't know. It's like a, a little little door. where So you're on the bench. And then behind the, on the side of the bench, there's a little door. And you just go through that door like a chicken in a trap, you know, and pa, it was gone. I was directly surrounded by two big guys, two guards. And uh, yeah, I, was, I, I remember lying on the bench and taking my, my, my tie off. And one of them said, well, he'll be out by December for good behavior. And then the other guy said, no, I don't think so, because it's a violent crime. He'll be there until February. And I was lying on the bench and I just went like this. I just remember perfectly and I thought, wow, story of my life. And then I was put in some kind of a little bus where you have like little cages. And then with that, you go, you, I went to jail. I couldn't believe it. What a story. And who was with you in the court? Just my lawyer. Because I really did not believe it would be an issue. I was way too confident. I didn't realize. You see, that's my mistake. Did you get to speak to Eddie Jordan after the verdict? No, no. I went straight to, to jail. And uh, from there, I didn't speak with him anymore. I only spoke to him in Japan after, when I came back. We'll come to Japan. But can we talk about prison life? What was it like? <laughs> okay, it's humiliating. It is really hard from that point of view. But for the rest, it's okay. You know, it's, you adapt very well. I had a lot of fun. There were some very nice guys there. I, we, honestly, I'm not joking. I would say 90% of the people in there shouldn't be in jail. It's completely crazy. Uh, you know, you put people in jail for stupid offenses, mortgage offenses and stuff like that. What will it change them? It's it's credit card frauds. It, it was ridiculous to put these people in the jail for that. And trust me, it was the best university for, for learning. Because when I went there, they said to me, I re- I'll never forget this guy. It was, it was, I was, my, it was my cellmate. And he said, so you're the racing Giza. I didn't even know what Giza meant, but okay, I learned. He said, ah, you know, your motor racing, all this is rubbish. You know, come with me. What we do is we steal a car, then we pass it through a, a window 
of a supermarket or something like that to steal the cigarettes. And he said, and you can be our getaway driver. No, but I'm serious. This is not, not a joke. And it was really a learning experience. Also the suffering. I really saw grown men suffer because of the injustice or the pain that they were caused. And it's a terrible thing, prison. How, how did you suffer? I was angry. I was angry to be in the jail. I was angry. And, uh, you know, in a way, it was an experience for me. And I, and I took it as such, you know, that when they take your freedom away, you, you realize that life is not about money, is not about many things that you think are important to you right now. But in fact, when you're in a jail, is freedom is what matters. Only freedom and health. The rest... And, and I swore myself when I was in jail that I'd be happy every day after that, as long as I was free and my loved one and, and myself healthy. I would not complain. And I, I really have followed that. You were a sportsman at the time. How much did your condition suffer, both physically and mentally? I think mentally, no, because you, you get stronger. You know, Formula One is a tough world and the jail was nothing. You're surrounded by, by guys which most of them... They're nice people. I really mean that. And uh, some are even very interesting. Uh, their stories were incredible. That's the, 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 the one thing. The, the thing which is wrong is the waste of time and the freedom being taken away. This is really terrible that you, 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 know, you are not the master of your destiny. Were you able to keep yourself physically fit in any way? Not in the first prison. In the first prison, I was in Brixton and we were locked up for 23 hours a day. And then we had one hour of walking in, in a circle. That was, that was interesting. Yeah, I, I gained weight for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. You can do, you can do. Uh, I don't know if prisons have changed now, but at the time you could not stay fit for sure. What about in the second prison that you were moved to? Uh, that was better. But um, yeah, again, you know, you, you have to look at your motivations and, and you're, you know, you're not going to start to do exercise. You can't actually, you physically don't have because you, you, you're being moved from one place to another. So, no, I don't think you can stay really fit. You know, you said you were angry. Angry about the verdict, yes. But were you also angry that the momentum had gone from your career? Because you were having the season of your life. You were making a name for yourself in Formula One. You'd won Le Mans for Mazda as well. Things were going so well on track. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. And I believe it was. And, you know, my anger was exactly that. It was like I'd been working all my life to get there. And then for something trivial, it was taken away. And that's how I felt. And I felt it was wrong from that point of view. Now, obviously, life is very hard. And, you know, some people have much, much bigger, bigger problems than being in jail for a few months. You know, in hindsight, I don't complain, but at the time I was very, very unhappy about that. And especially, and, and this is something that only an expert like you would probably be able to check. But if you go to the race before, which was Hungary, in Hungary, we found something on the car. And basically, after qualifying, I was very unhappy with the car because Eddie didn't allow me to do development testing anymore. So I was not allowed to test the cars anymore. So Andrea was doing the, the testing. And Andrea loved an understeering car. And the car was understeering. I couldn't drive it. It was terrible. And in Hungary, I just went to Gary Anderson. And we still laugh about this today. And I said, look, change something because it's not possible. And we went radical. We, we completely changed the springs from the rear. We put to the front and the front springs, we put them on the rear. 
I want to share that because that's really something you, you, can, you can verify. It. We went out in the warm-up. I remember driving. We were hungry, and I was driving in the warm-up. Those days, you had the warm-up, 30-minute uh, session before the, the race, and you were supposed to try full tanks, uh, handling of the car. And we're going out, and I go, and I start to drive, and I see P1 on my board. And I'm like, nobody must be out yet. And I said, but the car really feels good. The car really feels good. And I said, I don't understeer much with full tanks. And I thought, that's really good. I forgot, you know, that really, it probably was a change with me. So anyway, the car was going very well. And I stayed P1 and I said, but what are they doing? You know, what are the other guys doing? Because it's so easy. And, you know, everything was easy. The car was so efficient. I wasn't even pushing. Eventually, we finished the session P2 because Prost took his T-car and with no fuel. But nobody believed we were empty on fuel. And I remember going back to the pits and some journalists came and said, you were empty tanks. And, and Gary said, no, no, we're full tanks. And we opened the, the tank and we showed them that there was full tank. Can you believe? So when we went in the race, the, the car was absolutely incredible in the race. Uh, I had some problems and I had to stop in the pits, but we did fastest lap. We, we had a lap record in Hungary for one year. And what is interesting is when I left, I, I bet with Gary Anderson, I would be on pole position at Spa, which is a bit of a shame. What did you think Eddie Jordan was going to do about your Jordan seat when you were no longer available? Oh, I had no idea. I knew that there was a lot of people that wanted that seat and I had to, to give up my salary and pay some more money to Eddie in order to keep that seat before the court case. Can you believe that? So before the court case, I had to agree I would not take salary and I would pay some more money to the team for him not to, to, to terminate the agreement on the distribute clause. But once I was in jail, it was all gone. Did you ever get that money back? Yeah, yeah, we did. We, we got part of it. The sensation of Spa has been Germany's 22-year-old Michael Schumacher, who's substituting for Bertrand Gachot in the Jordan Ford team. Before Belgium, Schumacher had never driven a Formula One car on a full Grand Prix circuit, but today he starts seventh on the grid. An incredible achievement. You must be very happy with your results. Yeah, sure, I'm really happy. With this car, you can do with this qualifying time. You know, the car feels really good and uh, it's a lot of fun to drive. So what about Michael Schumacher, Bertrand? How aware were you of him at the time? No, I didn't know. I didn't know. The first time somebody spoke to me about Michael Schumacher, again, I won't forget, is one of the, the guards in jail. And he said, the new guy that they hired is so good, they don't need you anymore. So you can stay here. I tell you, word for word. Oh, God, poor you. Oh, no, that's the last thing you want to hear. And the guard would come to me. Every time he would open the door, he would make the noise of a Formula One. I swear to you. When he'd go to open the door, he'd go like, Vroom, you know, like it was you know, his way. Did you have any way of watching the races when you were in prison? No. Were you aware what Schumacher was doing at Spa with that seventh place on the grid? And I wasn't, but... Andrea Di Cesare sent me a letter and that was very funny because he's, but I was really good friends with Andrea and he, he, he was an amazing guy. And uh, he, he wrote me the letter saying, uh, don't worry about the German. Uh, he just got me in qualifying, but I will get him soon. You watch. Did you get lots of letters from people in Formula One? 
I was crazy. I, I received something like 10,000 letters in, in total. And uh, it, this gave me a lot of strength. I must say, I was really moved by that. And uh, I, I, I really got a lot of support. It was, it was incredible. You know, I, I, just, I just remember, I want to say that. I remember we were in, in the jail and we were opening the letters with the other prisoners together because we had so many to open every day. And we would open them together and read them one by one. It was very, very nice. Almost a bonding experience between you and the other inmates. Sure, absolutely. I tell you, most of them were nice people. So you weren't aware what was going on at Spa on track. Did anyone tell you about the other drivers wearing T-shirts with, I don't know, Gasho Y, I think was one line. And God, what was it? God saved the British and Gasho, I think, was another one. We, we, you weren't aware of no. that either? No, no. How did it make you feel when you, you came out and you saw that there had been so much solidarity? Well, I, obviously, it moved me a lot. And I saw pictures in the newspapers that I would eventually receive, but with quite a long delay. No, I was really moved by that. And, you know, it, it gave me great strength. You know, I felt they couldn't touch me. They, because at one stage they wanted to put me in solitary confinement and stuff like that, and they could not touch me. But on what grounds, on what grounds could they have put you in solitary confinement, for goodness sake? It would be too long to say, but basically our, I, one of my inmates, which was called PK, I tried to help him to send something to his girlfriend. And basically, because of that, they were really upset. Anyway, the thing is, they couldn't touch me. Really, I was I was very strong mentally at that stage. Any other misdemeanors that you got up to in prison, Bertrand? <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> helping a guy called PK as well of all of all names. He, he was a nice guy. Uh, no, no, I would tell you it, it's really it's 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 a story in itself. But basically, you you have an economy in a jail which I didn't know because the first thing I did is I got some some cash from my lawyer, he passed me some money through his socks. And, and I took it when I met with him because I thought I need cash to, 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 to buy anything because I had nothing. But very quickly, I realized that money is worth nothing in jail. What is worse is tobacco and uh, telephone cards. These are the two items which were worth something. And I didn't know all that. I imagine you learned very quickly. Tell us about being released and what happened next. Well, basically, the, the first thing is we, we got into the biggest court, the Strand court, for such a ridiculous thing. And uh, so I went to that court and uh, I got released the same day. I pretty much expected it. We had a party at the French embassy. The French ambassador had been very, very helpful. When you were convicted and you said you went straight through a door and, and into a van and straight to prison, when you're released, is it the same the other way? You go through a door and straight out into freedom again? or no. Because I, I, I was released on appeal because, you see, uh, we appealed the decision. So I was released on appeal and I was in this enormous courtroom with uh, these judges. And, you know, it was it was what it was. Basically, I was in a little room and then eventually they came and they said, OK, you're being released. And they gave me 20 pounds or something like that to take the train. You know, they give you some money. So I took the money. I remember that. And uh they passed me through a back door and I was in the street. And I remember my dad, which uh, is not here anymore, but basically my dad was was making an interview because I didn't know if I was going to be released. And, and I came from behind to my dad and, 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 you know, I said, hey, I'm here. 
And it was an amazing moment. Incredible moment. So you go to the French embassy, who have been very helpful. Was the next thing to book a flight to Japan and away you go? No, there was no, there was no booking. We, 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 we went to the French embassy. We had a cocktail and we had to rush. And from there, we went straight to the airport. I never went home. And uh, so we went straight to the airport. And I have a funny story there because we were, we were rushing to get the plane. And as we're running, we had the press running behind us. Suddenly I saw Burger King and I wanted so much a Burger King that I stopped and I ran into the Burger King with the four people that were running with me. We went in there and I said, I'm not going until I get a, a hamburger. And uh, the press didn't see it and they carried running. And it was, it was really hilarious. And, uh, and then we went in the plane. And I, I also another thing I didn't forget is like I, I got into the plane and Philip Morris had put me a, in, in, in first class ticket to go to Japan. And I thought that was such a, a nice feeling, you know, compared to the jail to be two hours before I was in jail. And then suddenly I was there. It felt, felt really good. What an extraordinary transformation in your life in the space of two hours but so you go to japan what are you expecting to happen when you get there well i wanted to go back to my normal life and uh, when i arrived in japan the very very strange thing is i completely forgot everything that had happened before like the jail and all that i was back in it it was normal obviously i went to see eddie and i said look uh, i'm ready to drive and uh, he said to me, <laughs> he was very angry. And uh, basically he said, no, you can't drive. Somebody else is driving your car now. And I said, well, I'm here, uh, you know, I'm here. And so, but anyway, I wanted to be present and I wanted to show that uh, I wanted to come back. And, and you know what was extraordinary is the support I got because some Japanese companies came to me and wanted to sponsor us. And basically they put me into an, uh, the, the LaRousse car it was really, I had overwhelming support and everybody in F1 was, was very, uh, very kind and very nice. I must say I was touched by that. Was Bernie Ecclestone helpful to you? Bernie laughed about this. He said, you know, now you have a trademark and, you know, he, for him, it was like nothing at all. <laughs> I remember he said, that's your trademark now. At least they know you for something. Also, what I, I, I want to say that is that the first thing Michael came, Michael Schumer came and he came to see me. And he said, Bertram, I want to say, you know, I'm really sorry for what happened. Uh, it was not right. And anything I can do. And since that day, we became really good friends, really. That's a nice story. Since that day after that, I really respected him for that. You know, uh, he, I thought it was very kind of him to, to do that. He, it was not necessary because he came to see me. Did you believe at this time that you could regain the momentum in your career? How confident were you? It was difficult. You see, when I was in jail, I said, no sponsor will want to put a logo on me coming out of jail. I thought, you know, corporations don't want to be involved with this and all that. But I was wrong. Actually, it was a country. I got more support than before. And I, I gained confidence. I saw, wow, you know, people understand that, that this was wrong. And actually, to the country, they want to help me. So I got more support than before. And the support that came out of Japan, was that built on the back of your success with Mazda at Le Mans? Maybe, maybe. But also because I saw the, the Japanese people, I don't know if the press had talked about it in the right way or something like that, but I got a lot of support. But honestly said, the support was everywhere, even within the teams. Just a, a quick word on that Le Mans victory. <laughs> Are your ears still ringing 
from the noise of that wankle rotary engine. God, it was noisy. Yeah, the, that, that was very <laughs> noisy. But, you know, we were very scared about that and we kept putting the earplugs in because we knew that the pressure after a few hours of that sound was, was very strong on your ears. And you know what is interesting? I'm still happy that I have good hearing still now after driving that car, I don't know how many hours. It was mad, wasn't it? And what was it like being partnered with Johnny Herbert at Le Mans? Because you and Johnny had been such firm rivals all the way up the motor racing ladder in Formula 3, Formula 3000. I met Johnny the first time when he really outmaneuvered me at the race in Formula Ford. And I thought, who is this guy? Because he came from the outside at Silverstone Club. I'll never forget how he, how he passed me there. I thought I had won the race and then he won it. And I thought, who's this guy? And I had respect for him. And then we, we, we were competing in Formula 3 and we were hating each other, obviously. But it was normal because we were wanting the same piece of, of championship, if you want. But later we became really good friends. And after Le Mans and since Le Mans, we've been very good friends. And I, I adore the guy. And he's very, very... Very smart, very, very efficient in his racing. He was, he knew exactly what to do. It's a shame he broke his legs because I think this guy could have been world champion. A lot of people think that. Yeah, no, no, he, he had talent. He, he, and he, he was a very nice person always. Okay, when you compete, less, but yeah. Bertrand, Jordan wasn't your first F1 team. So let's wind it back to the beginning now. You started with Onyx in 1989. How good was that car? That's difficult. Uh, the, the car had a lot of, of, of faults, but it was quite a fast car. And given the right opportunity, the car was very efficient. That's why when we, the first time we went through pre-qualifying, we qualified 11th. I qualified 11th at my first race. And the car was, was efficient. But it was different days, you know. Uh, Formula One of today is probably, uh, of then, is probably like Formula Three of today. I don't know, but it's it was a different. Why did that car perform so well at some tracks and less at others? I mean, for listeners who don't remember, Stefan Johansson finished on the podium in Portugal that year in that car. Yeah, but that was a special, uh, that's due to, to him. He was very smart about that. What they'd done is they'd done cycles through their tyres. And that enabled them to use only one set of tires for the whole race. They didn't have chain tires. And by putting heat cycles in the tires, that was a trick that Stefan did. He, he really did do that race himself. Uh, he did very well there. He put the cycles through the tires so they became hardened. And then he could use only one set without them breaking down at the end of the race. Okay, that's interesting. But why did you part ways with the team midway through the year? Okay, you know, when you're in the back of the grid in teams which are struggling to survive, it's always very difficult. It was just money. Basically, the team needed money. Van Rossum, as we know, didn't have the resources, so he had to find a way. And uh, Keke Rosberg came and promised him to millions of dollars if he took JJ Leto. I remember I was in Portugal with my girlfriend on the beach, and I came back to the hotel because before the race, you know, we came to Portugal. I went to the beach during the day. In the afternoon, I come back to the hotel and they say, so what do you say about being fired? And I looked at them and I said, have I been fired? And they said, yeah, you've been fired. And I said, why? And they said, you held a press conference in Belgium? I said, no, but I'm here. And I said, it's a mistake. So I went to see Van Rossum 
that night and he said, uh, look, I have no choice. He gave me a contract that he would pay me uh, so much money. And uh, I thought to myself, I take the money. Basically, he was going to give me one million out of the three million or four million that Rosberg was going to pay him for JJ Leto. I just took the contract and I said, it's better to get out of here. That's really the, the bottom line. He was a colourful character, Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, wasn't he? Incredible. Incredible guy. Incredible. Uh, extremely smart, extremely devious, <laughs> but an extremely smart person. Let's push it forward to 1990 now, the following season. You're at Cologne now, and there's a Subaru Flat 12 pushing you along, but not very quickly. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, 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 that was not the smartest move I did uh, to go in that team, but I didn't really have much choice. So I, I went with them, and the, the engine was the size of a ping-pong table, and it, it was just another generation. But, you know, we, we really tried our best and it was impossible. Yeah, the, we were in another league. We were not 10 seconds behind. We're more than 10 seconds behind. I remember spinning on the straight with that car because of aerodynamical issues. Spinning on the... That's, that's, that's not good <laughs> in any way. And how bad was the engine? Look, it was not bad or good. It was not suited for Formula One anymore. It was not an engine, a Formula One engine. But even with a Cosworth in the back of it, that car still didn't qualify later on in the year either, did it? Yeah, but that car was fun to drive. That was one of the best cars to drive. It had no much downforce. So it was like a huge go-kart with, I don't know, 600 horsepower, 500 kilo. And that was a fun car to drive. But okay, there was no downforce effectively. So we were very slow. Let's talk teammates quickly now. Who was the best teammate you ever had? <laughs> I'm going to say something surprising, but it's Tom Christensen. He is the guy that retired me. When, when, I, when I raced against him, I thought to myself, I have no future here. The guy is just faster. And I wanted to be the fastest. I always had the edge on my teammates. If you look in the, in the books, you know, so, uh, I think overall I could have the edge on my teammate or... Really, it was very competitive. But with Tom, every time I tried my best, the guy just was just faster. And I really tried. And I thought to myself, okay, if this guy can beat me, and he's not even in F1, I say, what am I doing? And what about in Formula One? Andrea de Cesaris was very fast when he had the car set up how he wanted. He was very fast. He was a very good driver. I, I tell you, I have the highest respect for him. He was the fastest, I, I would say, out, out of my teammates, yeah. And what about Ukio Katayama? I remember Michael Schumacher telling a story of how he'd followed Katayama at Spa and how Ukio had managed to turn one corner into four. <laughs> that was Michael's report. You were teammates with him in 92. How quick was Ukio? I don't want to be nasty. I don't think he was quick. I, you know, for me to go in a rental car with him was dangerous. So, you know, in a Formula One was difficult. To, to judge, yeah, no, I, I, I think he had no clue, absolutely no clue. But he was very, very light on the straight. He was, the guy was so fast, it was ridiculous. You could see the speed curves. How was the debrief after the race at Suzuka in 92, where you actually came together at the chicane, didn't you? Yeah. What did you say? I, I, I was crying. What happened there is, is like this, is we had come together already once in Canada that year 
And uh, the team said that can never happen again. And because Ukyo was the guy that had most of the, the, the backing and the financing, uh, he was very important to the team. And when we came together in before the race in, in Suzuka, I think I qualified 10th or something like that. And the car was very, very fast in the race. Then I came to do the pit stop and we had a problem with the change of the wheels. And I started last again, but I was really a lot faster. And Ukyo, when I overtook him, they said to me on the radio, at the end of the straight, you overtake. We had agreed before the race, you only overtake at the end of the straight. And they told me on the radio, at the end of the straight, Ukyo will let you go. I remember thinking, okay, good. So now I can go. And I dived and he turned in. It was one of my biggest mistakes to believe it. And it was really stupid. I'm still angry with myself for believing it. You know, this, this is the kind of mistakes I shouldn't have done. And I did it. It was totally unnecessary. I should have expected it. And I didn't. <laughs> oh, but I'm sorry to bring back these bad memories. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I tell you, when, when, when I finished that race, I, I was so angry with myself that I, I virtually had tears. Because I just thought, how can I make such a mistake? I hated myself and because I should have known better. This is easy to say it's not my fault, but ultimately it was. I should have expected it. He was in Japan. He didn't want me to pass. And to crash with your teammate is a cardinal mistake. And I did it. As I say, I'm sorry to bring back that memory. I just want to... <laughs> no, no, no. But, but you know, we, we, we're doing this. And you know, that the thing is, I'm not the kind of guy that will go the faster. The older I, I, I get, the faster I was. I, I know my abilities, but I also know my weaknesses. And I certainly had a lot of them. Can we talk now about team ownership? Because for 94 and 95, you were a shareholder in Pacific. Why did you go down that route? Yeah, that was funny. Um, yeah, because basically I have a, a lot of friendship and, and faith in Keith Wiggins, which was my team manager in Formula Ford, Formula Ford 2000. He did very well in Formula 3 and Formula 3000. He became champion and I thought we can go together into Formula 1. At that time, I decided to actually, first, before that, I decided to go into IndyCars with Adrian Reynard. And you had a good race at Toronto, I remember, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I must say, uh, I had always extreme faith in Adrian and uh, Adrian Reynard uh, project. And, but then Keith Wiggins convinced me to, to, to get into Formula 1 with him as a partner. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. This we're going to do. And I wanted to do that. And, and basically, I put all my efforts to build our own team. What was the hardest thing? There were so many hard things. That's why, you know, a, a Formula One team today is completely different than at those, in those days. However, the competitiveness is still the same. And I think today and then it was extremely difficult. Everything was difficult. You see, I, I'll give you a stupid example. You want fuel, okay? The top teams will receive better fuel and will receive money for using that fuel. You are a new team coming in. You have to pay for the fuel and you get less good fuel, less competitive fuel, less performance. Same with the tires, same with the engines. You pay for the engines and you get worse engines. The other people, they get the engines free, they get better engines and they get money for using those engines. So Formula One is an extremely difficult, extremely competitive business. So it's really survival of the fittest to the extreme. Had you underestimated that side of it? Obviously, mm. totally. 
but it was it was a few years of my life which I'll never forget. You know, I would take uh, a plane in the morning, a plane in the afternoon to see sponsors, to see people. It was incredible, incredible years. It was like I was running in the tunnel. You know, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, but everything was crumbling behind me. You know, I was. We didn't have the money to pay for the trucks, for the planes, for the engines, for the customs. It was crazy. And, you know, we, we were running, me and, and, and Keith Wiggins, we, we aged 10 years in two. Was it possible to be player manager? Because you were driving as well. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Maybe, you know, really it's possible. It's possible to be done. Okay, I was not the guy in the gym all day. That's for sure. But I never enjoyed that that much. To, to be honest, I much prefer to, to do business and to be in a business meeting than in a gym. And then midway through 95, you stand back anyway to invite pay drivers in. Is that right? Is that a correct assessment? Yeah. Well, there was nothing to gain from me driving at that stage. And it was we, we wanted to make the team survive until we, we had a better car. Really, that was our goal. But then you do race in Adelaide, don't you? At the end of 95, I think, was it because Oliver Gavin couldn't get a super license? I think, is that the story? I don't remember, but you're probably right. Yeah, It was something like that. And I just got in the car and I think I finished seventh or eighth. Yeah, you were. You were eighth. Absolutely. And, it was what my, and I'm proud of that. I finished eighth in my last race in my own team. I thought it was fun. Yeah. But did you know the writing was on the wall at that point? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. I didn't want anymore. I, I, I wanted to move on. I, I thought to myself, I will never be world champion. I will never win races in Formula One unless uh, there's a miracle. Why, why am I doing this? You know, I need to move on. Move on from racing? Yeah. Or did you still want to stay in racing at that time? No, I didn't want to race, stay in racing. I, I went to, to race to Japan because I had such good contacts and it was more like a hobby. It was not my profession. At that time, I started hype. That's when I started the, the drinks business. Couple of questions I want to ask you on this because a lot of drivers find it very difficult to wean themselves off Formula One. And hence we see a lot of them coming back as television pundits or getting involved with teams as ambassadors. Yet you're saying you wanted to be shot of it. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I just, I didn't want to continue. You know, I thought I had an extraordinary time. And, you know, I, I'm very proud and very happy of the cars I've been able to drive. And, Okay, the results were not what I what I wanted, but I tell you what, it was an amazing life and it was my dream. So I'm very happy and thankful for that. And I'm also thankful that I, I didn't get hurt too bad. And, you know, that's luck. It's pure luck. So, you know, what could I complain about? And I was sitting in a plane a few years back with uh, Damon Hill. You know, we started Formula 4 together and, and obviously we didn't like each other, but obviously with time, we, we're good friends now. And, you know, we had a good conversation. You know, I thought he's been world champion. He won an enormous amount of Grand Prix. And I really have not achieved nothing in F1. And we were sitting in the plane and we were saying, both of us, you know, we're quite happy. You know, overall, it's okay, you know. It, 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 was, it was interesting. It was an amazing time. How did your experiences in Formula One help building the hype energy drink? I love the Formula One world. I love the competitiveness. I love Formula One when it was freer also on the technical uh, side. For me, competition is the most important thing in life. You know, this is how the best comes out of you. I, I remember one day I was in Hungary the first time I drove there and I, I drove the car and 
I had studied the track. It was the first time I discovered this, this track. It was with Onyx. And I was like 10 seconds off the pace. And I thought to myself, I will never be able to drive like the top guys. And, you know, 10 seconds, that's, it's not a little bit. My teammate was 10 seconds faster than me. And I thought, I'll never do it. And then I said, okay, okay, now panic mode. I'm going to follow someone for a lap or two because we're in pre-qualifying. And I was following the car in front and I learned and I learned the lines and I learned. And through that competition and, and following people and learning and, and being competitive with them, I was able to come, I don't remember now, but you know, the, there was no gap anymore. I was within the, the same times. And this really, I never forgot how incredible or miracles you do when you are in a competitive environment. You find new limits of yourself. And you've applied that attitude to your business life with hype, have you? I, I like it very much how you put it. Exactly. Exactly that. I, I run this business. Obviously, it's very difficult to, to build a brand. To build a brand is one of the most difficult things for sure. And I'm probably not the best guy to do it also. But I, I really try to create a competitive environment within my own team where we develop the best products. My goal is to make the best drinks that we offer to consumers. I'm quite proud of the range of products we have. I applied what I learned in Formula One. Yeah. Always evolving, always progressing. How many countries are you available in now? I think over 40 countries we are significant. It must have been quite a moment for you when you sponsored the Force India team, your old Jordan team, effectively. Was that when you were thinking, who are we going to sponsor? Was it quite tempting just to go straight to Force India or did you think of other people as well? First, I respect you very much for knowing that because not many people know this. And, and it's something I'm actually very proud of. Uh, you see, I was driving for this team and they're still the same people in the team. Andy Green, Andy Stevenson, they were with me in the team at the time. And when I, I, I retired, I, I started the business. For me to be able to come and as a sponsor back into it, I was very proud of that. And I'm still, we still have very good contact. So, yeah, it was absolutely no question. The only team I would sponsor is the team where they were, for sure. And what are your ambitions with Hype? Do you want to be a, a rival for Red Bull? It, it, what, what do you want to achieve with it? I, I just want to make the best products, functional drinks. I, we, we are a functional drinks company. So we do drinks that you take for a purpose. So we have energy drinks. We have sports drinks, isotonic sports drinks. We have pre-workout drinks. We have CBD drinks. So all the products we do have a purpose. And I believe we, we have a very unique range. And my ambition are unlimited. Ah. <laughs> but I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm not sure I would be the, the one achieving it. I, I do believe that if you had something really we, we have a beautiful brand. Hype is a beautiful name. And uh, we have a beautiful portfolio of products. Yeah, if if you had a marketing genius running the company, probably we'd be a lot further than where we are today. And I say that sincerely. You know, I try my best. And you're being very modest, Bertrand. You're being very modest. It's incredible the journey you've been on with that company. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. But I know also that we have probably the best brand. And, you know, we're not the, the, the you know, people like our competitors have, have, have done better than us. But I always say, you know, I have one life. If you look, there's thousands of brands that came and go and went. However, hype is is one opportunity and I'm building it very strongly and slowly, maybe, but it's it's solid. 
And I, I do believe eventually people will appreciate the quality. Well, look, best of luck with that. And Bertrand, it's 30 years since that seismic moment in your career. It's crazy to think, isn't it, that it's been 30 years? And I tell you, I remember every second. Are we going to see you at the Belgian Grand Prix? No, I'm not going to go because I don't need to go there to remember it. But I'll go to some more Grand Prix. I love going to Grand Prix. I'm passionate about the races. My daughters, uh, we watched the race with my daughters and my son. My son was a racing driver. He stopped. But I love it. I really do. Who's your money on for the World Championship this year? (sighs) wouldn't say but uh, it's a it's a dutch driver you see how passionate i am <laughs> i even i even root for the competition <laughs> he's certainly got the car well i think he's he's remarkable but do you think it'll go right down to the wire do you think lewis will push him down to the wire or, or do you think he'll get some image totally i i think uh, this is an epic battle and a lot of talent when two drivers have an accident like they did at Silverstone, how does that change the rules of engagement going forward? Yeah, but I'm, I'm old school. And I was, I was talking with, with my kids about that. And I, I thought if I was Verstappen, I wouldn't have said a word. I would not have told Hamilton what I'm thinking. Just said, we talk on the track. But it's easy to say. I, I think these penalties are too much. And... To be honest, I think it was a racing incident, in my view. But who am I to judge? Between the two of them, do you think they'll give each other a little more room going forward? Or do you think they will be as uncompromising totally. as they were at Silverstone? Absolutely. These guys are, are the best and they are fighting for the world championship and, and they'll, do, they'll do anything. You'll see it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse before it's going to get better. And there is no doubt in my mind like Senna Prost in those days. And I think this is the beauty of the sport, you know, is to see these guys, you know, and who will make more, less mistakes and more mistakes. I must say that I, I was very impressed with the sprint race. It was extremely, uh, how the, the, the way Max drove then, it was incredible. You know, I'm passionate about the sport. You are, you are. Yeah. And I think he was very hard on Lewis in the sprint, which might have been one of the reasons why Lewis didn't back down in the main Grand Prix. Totally. I'm totally with you there. I think Max probably is used to drivers backing down. And this time, Lewis said no. But I, I'm, I'm against the penalties and stuff like that. I think we, sh- we should much more laissez-faire. Well, Bertrand, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to chat and to get your thoughts. And, and you remember it all so clearly as well. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your interest. I respect very much your questions and I can see that you know what you're talking about. So thank you for that. Yeah, I look forward to to see you on the track. All right. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wasn't it fantastic to hear from the racing geezer as he was known in prison? Bertrand's description about what happened during the build-up to the 1991 Belgian Grand Prix was almost unbelievable, and the level of detail he gave was fascinating. Just think for a moment what might have happened had he not gone to prison that August and he'd raced on for Jordan. What might he have achieved in Formula One? But you can't change history, and what happened to Bertrand has gone down in F1 folklore. To have found the sweet spot of the Jordan 191 only to have the drive taken away so abruptly still seems cruel. 
but it gave us an incredible story and Bertrand's description of his weeks in prison was enthralling. To receive more than 10,000 letters, including one from teammate Andrea de Cesaris, is a reminder of his popularity and the magnitude of the story. Bertrand, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and I hope we'll see you at a race soon, maybe as a sponsor once again. Before we move on, please remember to send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Bertrand. Did you see him race the Jordan 191 or did you send him a letter to prison? Let me know and remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Patrick Head after last week's show. And I'm pleased to report that many of you enjoyed the episode. Let's start with this from Mac McCall, who says, I've just listened to Patrick Head. I was at Dijon in 82 and I remember cheering Keke as he ate up the Renault. When he passed him, the French all got up and went home. I loved Patrick and Frank and what they did for privateers in Formula One. Well, that's a great memory for you, Mac. I did love Patrick's Keke stories, particularly his 160 mile an hour lap of Silverstone in 1985. Clearly, they had a very strong bond. And how about this from Mark Kelsall? Great that you got some fresh insights from Patrick. Loved the Honda boardroom story. And yes, a part two looking at the engineering side of all their title winning cars would be great. Indeed it would, Mark, and I will try and organise that down the line. And how I loved the Honda boardroom story too. It was a fascinating insight into Honda's inner workings at the time. Fani Kamineni sent this in. I'm always fascinated how teams and individuals operated in Formula One back in the day. My favourite quote from this episode with Sahed is, there was always a need to appease Bernie. That sums up how independent every Formula One team was compared to today. Yes, the way he spoke about testing Jacques Villeneuve in the summer of 95 to appease Bernie was fascinating, wasn't it? Frank Williams and Bernie clearly went back a long way. And let's end with this from Nick Barkley. Going into this week's pod with Patrick Head, I had expectations, he says. But wow! The stories he told, as if they happened yesterday, were enthralling. I truly thought I was back in the 70s, 80s and 90s and beyond. Unbelievable. We need a part two. Well, many thanks for the note, Nick. And Patrick was indeed a fabulous guest. I could read out lots more messages because we received loads, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. We loved hearing what you have to say. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Bertrand and don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.